the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we will continue our WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution with a look at the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now they are the key interpreters of what the Constitution and our laws actually mean and they've played a variety of roles shaping our culture and our lives and the tension between equality and inequality in our nation. Two great experts will help us sort through that role over history. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today, we're going to continue our 2021 WDET book club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the ways in which it has shaped and still guides our lives and our nation. And this time, we want to spend the hour considering the role played by the U.S. Supreme Court and its justices in interpreting the Constitution and thus guiding the collective social and cultural shifts of our society. Now, the power of the court isn't really imagined in the Constitution itself. It's only briefly mentioned in Article 3, which establishes a Supreme Court, but doesn't explicitly say much at all about what the job of the court would be in our republic. Our nation's fourth Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Marshall, said back in the early 1800s that it is the court's job to tell the rest of us what the Constitution and our laws actually mean and to be the arbiter of that, even over the authority of the other two branches of government. But over time, that has come to mean really different things depending on who the members of the court are and who the Chief Justice is. So here to delve into this topic are two people who know the Supreme Court pretty much inside and out. Bill Trainer is the Dean of Georgetown Law and a constitutional historian. Bill, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there, Dean? Good morning. Hey, uh, welcome to the show. I'm there, yeah. yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I'm uh, delighted to be here. Uh, and also with us is Garrett Epps. He's a professor of law emeritus at the University of Baltimore and a constitutional scholar. Uh, professor Epps, welcome to Detroit Today. How are you doing? So I want to start by having you both kind of lay out the case for uh, examining the role played by the Supreme Court in the U.S. Constitution and kind of why that reveals uh, the court's role in advancing or in, in some instances harming efforts toward an equitable society for all Americans. Let's kind of start at the beginning here. Uh, what role does the court play? What role was the court supposed to play? Uh, Dean Trainer, I'll start with you. Well, you know, as you said, there wasn't much discussion at the Constitutional Convention about the court's um, the big focuses was on the presidency and on the power of Congress. 
and much less attention to what the courts would do. Uh, so Article Three wasn't really the focus. Um, one thing that I think, though, was clearly evident uh, soon after the Constitution was drafted was that courts would have the power of judicial review. In other words, that uh, they would be able to overturn statutes. Um, that was not something that you saw in, in Great Britain. Um, in Great Britain, Parliament was supreme. Uh, but when people started to work through a written constitution, uh, what they realized was, what the courts realized was they had a choice between do you give effect to a statute or do you give effect to a written constitution? And pretty consistently, uh, they gave the, the constitution was the Trump. So one of the big questions is, was judicial review part of the original understanding? And I believe it was. And so the, the great Supreme Court case of Marbury versus Madison, which everybody is familiar with, mm -hmm. um, is, and which is often thought to have established judicial review, really applied something that had been applied by a lot of state courts and actually federal courts as well before Marshall's decision in 1803. Mm. Uh, and Professor Epps, talk about, uh, I guess, over time, the role that the court has played in the tensions between uh, equality and inequality and how this unelected branch of government has a different kind of power in that regard uh, than the other two branches? Well, I'll say a, a couple of things about that. And I think the overall point people need to be aware of and that, you know, my students sometimes have difficulty grappling with is that historically, at least for the first 150 years and, and arguably today, uh, the court's role has not been uh, one to of uh, promoting liberation or bringing the American dream to life or reaching down to help the humble, but in fact has been the reverse. The court has been the firewall of privilege um, in a lot of ways and uh, has stepped in repeatedly uh, to block legislation or, or social phenomena that are leading toward greater equality in our society. Uh, it's not surprising that uh, eight or, I mean, nine prominent lawyers would have a conservative take on society, but we, we tend to uh, misapprehend some of the court's uh, most important decisions as a commitment to this ongoing vision of citizenship and equality that, that's really not present. Hmm. Um, so, and I, I want to go over lots of the history here and lots of cases, but I mean, we can start sort of with uh, with the decision in Dred Scott uh, as, you know, Exhibit A, I suppose, of, of what you're talking about, Professor Epps. Uh, this is a, a, a very significant case uh, uh, that thwarts, um, thwarts the effort toward equality uh, for African-Americans, uh, for, for slaves uh, before, um, before the Civil War? Well, you know, Dred Scott uh, really is, I, I think, uh, by wide agreement, the worst decision the court ever made. And it certainly uh, contributed very strongly to the onset of a civil war in mm -hmm. which nearly a million people died. Mm -hmm. So you could say that's an indicium of failure. Um, but it also led to, to the three uh, important 
uh, Civil War amendments to the Constitution. I mean, they, to, to kill that, they had to try to drive nails through its coffin three times. Uh, the 13th, 14th, and, and 15th Amendments. Um, and the question has always been, one of the questions that, that you grapple with in constitutional history is, what did the court learn from that experience? Uh, what, how does it see its role in the national dialogue? Uh, and, you know, that has varied widely from the uh, absolute sort of stony reactionary uh, uh, time of the Lochner court moving forward to the New Deal court, uh, which, uh, you know, enhanced the power of government uh, to advance equality, and uh, then moving into the Warren court, which dealt to a large degree with civil liberties. Actually, go ahead, Dean. If Trina. I can jump in, yeah. I mean, I think you know one thing that I would highlight though is I think Dred Scott was really a departure uh, from what we'd seen before in the court. The, you know, the court was—it's not that the court was a champion of equality but that it really wasn't involved in kind of the great social and economic issues of the day. So in terms of kind of major legislation, Marbury is the first statute, federal statute that the Supreme Court holds unconstitutional. And then the next major statute is in Dred Scott. So, you know, there's really, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a case in which I think the Supreme Court is intervening uh, in a way that it had not done before. And the consequences were tragic. But I think, you know, to go back to your question about, you know, whether the, the court was a, you know, force for equality or inequality, you know, these were not the issues that in, uh, until Dred Scott that the court was was really involved in. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, as Professor Epps has said, you know, Dred Scott in a lot of ways precipitates the Civil War. Um, and But then it also plays a major role in, you know, because the Civil War, you know, plays a major role in leading to the 13th Amendment, which ends slavery, the 14th Amendment, which is really the core protection of equality mm-hmm. um, in, our, in our federal constitution, and the 15th Amendment, which is a guarantee of voting. So, so uh, Dean Trainer, though, I would love to get your take on this idea of the court and its role over time and whether it has been uh, more a champion of the idea of equality or, as uh, Professor Epps suggests, uh, more of a firewall protecting uh, uh, elite interests in, in our society from the push for, for more equality. Do you see it the same way? I mean, I think, you know, there, there are different phases in our history. Um, until Dred Scott, you know, the Supreme Court is really not involved in kind of questions of equality and, and rights. Um, it, it does intervene to protect property rights, but it doesn't intervene in, in powerful ways, you know, in kind of the issues that you're, you know, focusing on, except to enforce the fugitive slave law, you know, mm-hmm. pretty aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, the court then, after Dred Scott, you know, has a very long period running into the New Deal, in which it's largely conservative and is very much a firewall. Um, and then there's, you know, it, and they're striking down New Deal legislation and there's a great national outcry. And, you know, we can talk about that in the court packing plan. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's something like, you know, we have not seen that um, force against the court uh, any time in our history, actually until now. Um, but then Roosevelt's appointees 
are very supportive of his economic legislation. And then the Warren Court is very supportive of you know, racial and economic justice. Mm. So that's a span of, it's not that long, but it's a span of, you know, in the neighborhood of 30 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, the court gradually moves to the right. So I I think of it as different eras in Supreme Court history Mm -hmm. uh, with different approaches to whether the court was a firewall or a champion of justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I I, I want us to talk about all of those different eras, and we'll do that in in some later segments on the show. Uh, But but before we get there, I I also want to talk just a little about um, the, the the role of the court as it relates to ordinary citizens and the understanding that ordinary citizens have of the court, the knowledge they have of the court, um, and I guess the gap that exists, I, I feel like, between that branch of government and the people that looks a little different than what you see uh, between citizens in Congress citizens uh, and the president, and how that plays a role in uh, understanding the court, its role, its influence uh, over our culture and our lives. Uh, Professor Epps, I'll I'll start with you. What is it about uh, the court that, I guess, makes its relationship to ordinary Americans really different? Well, I I think if you look throughout history, you can see, um, uh, even before the Civil War, uh, the court impacting uh, ordinary people's uh, lives, and uh, some of those ordinary people, of course, were uh, escaped slaves or, or free uh, people of color who were being dragged back into slavery. Um, but I think that if you consider the post-Civil War uh, era, um, the court had an impact on people's lives for quite a long time that was almost entirely prohibitory and negative. Uh, no, you can't have uh, powerful labor unions. No, you can't regulate the hours uh, of work of, of bakers. Uh, no, uh, Congress, neither Congress nor the states can outlaw child labor. Um, and these are very important sort of hidden parts um, of the court's history. They're a little bit like the uh, dog in, in uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes that doesn't fight. We don't go back and think of these as... Uh, great landmark cases, but they had enormous impact on ordinary people's uh, lives and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that continued right up through the New Deal. Um, after the New Deal cases, the court began to have more, you know, what we think of as the model of judicial review, which is uh, uh, concerned with individual civil liberties and uh, concerned with liberation and so forth. Its record's very spotty. I mean, you know, 120,000 people put in concentration camps uh, mm-hmm. during World War II is is uh, a negative. But it did begin to, to concern itself with the relationship between individuals and the state. Um, it's important, though, to understand that the court's statements about equality are almost always highly equivocal. We think of Brown versus Board as this uh, great triumph, but if you study how the school desegregation cases went, you'll see the court was very hesitant about actually saying uh, that we need to integrate our schools and we need to do away with uh, apartheid entirely. Uh, The court is always nervous whenever we get near the concept of equality. It, It 
in many ways does a good job with questions of liberty. Mm. It certainly does a good job of defending its own authority when it can. But when you get to the question of equality, looking at the interpretations of the 14th Amendment and how uh, narrowly that has been read uh, over time, looking at the current cases we see where the court is reading the Voting Rights Act as narrowly as possible, um, it has uh, cut back on the ability of state institutions to uh, uh, engage in affirmative action because it's worried that, you know, that, that this equality business is going too far. And that's a deeply rooted historical trend in the court's history. I, I say that not to suggest that the, the good decisions are bad. They're not. Um, but we need to have a, you know, a sort of clear-eyed vision of what role a court has served and arguably can serve in our society. Mm. Uh, Dean Trainer, what do you make of the relationship between ordinary Americans and the members of the Supreme Court? It looks different uh, than it does with members of Congress or the president. I, I think most Americans still know less about this branch of government and its members uh, than the other two, and yet there are these instances uh, of profound influence over our lives and uh, and our culture. Um, what 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 is it, what is it about that relationship that that makes it different than the others? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, so many things that the court does profoundly affect people's lives, whether they can vote, whether they can vote. You know, the abortion decisions, the quality and education decisions powerfully affect people's lives on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, one question, you know, you're right that, you know, historically people have not had the same relationship to the court that they've had to the Congress and the presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, it's partly, you know, you vote for the members of Congress sure. and the Senate and the president. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is I would say over the last 15 years, uh, the Supreme Court has been much more present in the popular eye than they ever have been. Uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg, you know, in particular, really became iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say, you know, I, she uh, would often speak to Georgetown Law students at the start of the year. And, you know, one of the kind of the great thrills that I would have is coming on the stage with her and seeing students with notorious uh, RBG t-shirts <laughs> and kind of their, the look on their faces when she walked into the room. Uh, I think, you know, she has been a real presence. Uh, you know, I think that Justice Sotomayor has been a real presence. Justice Scalia was a real presence. So, you know, what we've seen in recent years is the court is, you know, much more evident uh, to the American people. And I think for the first time we're seeing kind of a personal relationship uh, and the members of the court are known in ways that they haven't been. And then you combine that with, you know, the fact that I think really starting, uh, and this is a longer arc, um, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, President uh, uh, Johnson's attempt to name uh, uh, Justice Fortas. Chief Justice in 1968, mm-hmm. Supreme Court appointments have been very, very much, you know, big national issues. You know, the Senate hearings have been very heavily covered and, and many of them have been controversial. So again, I think what these have done is they've, you know, people are much more aware of the individual members of the court than they've ever been in our history. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, uh, I'm going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the role that the U.S. Supreme Court plays in interpreting the U.S. Constitution and deciding the ways in which uh, it shapes our lives. We want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Give us a call and tell us what you make of the Supreme Court and its role in our country. Do you see ways that decisions by the highest court have influenced and shaped your lives in ways both direct and indirect ways? Uh, give us a sense of what you make of the controversies that uh, arise about the U.S. Supreme Court. One very recently uh, in the context of the very strict Texas abortion law. As always, the number here on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Uh, we're continuing our WDET 2021 uh, Summer Book Club discussions about the U.S. Constitution and the way it influences our lives, shapes our sense of ourselves as Americans, and also influences our notions of equality and inequality. Uh, today we are talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which uh, since the very early parts of our republic has uh, been the arbiter of uh, what the Constitution actually means, what our laws and the Constitution actually mean. Uh, it plays a significant role in shaping uh, our lives in some cases. It certainly has played uh, important roles in pushing for, or in some cases thwarting, the push for uh, equality in our republic. Um, we would love, uh, we would love for you to join the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what your sense is of the Supreme Court. Uh, how much do you know about the people who are members of the Supreme Court? Uh, how closely do you follow uh, their 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 review of uh, cases, which begins? Uh, each October uh, and winds up in the spring, the next spring each year. Uh, what do you believe are the things that they ought to be thinking about uh, when they're making decisions about uh, what the Constitution and our laws mean? Do you see ways that the decisions by the highest court in the land have influenced or shaped your life, both directly or indirectly? And uh, give us a sense also of what kind of people you think ought to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, think of how much attention it gets right now uh, when a member retires or dies and a president nominates somebody to succeed them. Uh, these are very, very big news stories. Get a lot of attention, generate a lot of argument. Uh, what kind of person would you like to see uh, go through that process? 
Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. We've got two great guests with us this hour to help us sort through the court's history and its role. Uh, William Trainer is the dean of Georgetown Law and a constitutional historian. Also with us is Garrett Epps. He's a professor of law emeritus at the University of Baltimore and a constitutional scholar as well. Uh, let's start today with uh, Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Three things uh-huh. um, that where the judges got it wrong. Money is speech hmm. and that you can enjoy the benefit of union victories without paying union dues. Hmm. And lastly, that Employers with strongly held religious convictions can dictate the um, behavior of their employees. Hmm. So, Bernadette, uh, before I get back to our, our experts here, I mean, that's a that's a pretty detailed list. Uh, you're someone who uh, is obviously uh, paying pretty close attention uh, to the to the court and and what it's doing. I, I'd like to know a little more about what that interest is. I mean, I, I would I, I don't think I'm out of uh, out of my lane saying that's maybe a little uncommon to have uh, that much of a detailed take on 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 cases of the of, of that nature. Uh, what is it about the court that attracts your attention and uh, and, and makes you really interested in what they're up to? I really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful comments. I want to give our experts a, a chance to respond. Bernadette is maybe a counterexample to what I was talking about earlier. Um, uh, Dean Trainer, uh, react to what she's saying here. Yeah, I think Bernadette, that that's very impressive. Uh, kind of your <laughs> uh, the attention and the thought that you've given to Supreme Court decisions. Um, I think one that I, you know, I completely would agree with you on is Citizens United, mm-hmm. um, which is a Supreme Court decision that's about 10 years ago, you know, which really allowed, you know, rich people to, you know, put money into politics in a way that we hadn't had before. And, you know, the idea of the decision is that money is speech and the Supreme Court shouldn't be regulating it. Mm-hmm. But that's a, uh, you know, I think that that's really kind of inconsistent with, you know, what the case law has been before and really, you know, is bad for the political process. I mean, I think at the core, one of the things that the court should be doing is, you know, making sure that people, everybody has a voice and the greatest Supreme Court decisions 
have supported giving everybody a voice and a decision like Citizens United just gives rich people much more of a voice than everybody else. And I, I think that's kind of at odd with our constitutional framework. Yeah, uh, I remember very quite clearly uh, the reaction of Justice uh, John Paul Stevens uh, to the Citizens United uh, case, uh, how upset he was with the ruling and, and he spent uh, many years uh, since talking about the idea that money is not speech, that money is property and therefore uh, quite regulable uh, by by the court. Uh, Professor Epps, I uh, wonder what you make of uh, Bernadette's take on the court. Well, you know, Bernard, there's a there's a lot there, um, and and these are uh, cases you know that I I covered in in when I was uh, court correspondent for the Atlantic, um, and I think that. The, to start with Citizens United, and we may not get any further, but uh, I, I want to link that to what I said earlier about the court being nervous about this equality business, not sure that, that it's really a good idea. Mm. Um, and the court's um, campaign finance cases, going back well before Citizens United, have had one central principle that I find not in the Constitution and I think is really if you look at it, bizarre, and that is this this notion, and I can almost quote it verbatim, the, the idea that the First Amendment pers- uh, allows the limiting of some voices in order to allow others to be heard, said the court, is entirely foreign to the First Amendment. I, I have never understood that sentence. I don't know what foreign country the idea comes from, but it's an idea that none of us would really allow in in our local government, for example, that that someone could show up at city council meetings and say, I intend to speak for the entire public comment uh, period, and I have uh, people behind me with bullhorns to drown out anyone who wants to speak contrarily, the, the, the board would say, no, you get your six minutes, and then someone else gets their six minutes, <laughs> because we want to hear a variety of voices. Um, the courts and campaign finance decisions uh, over the years have been very systematically aimed at liberating and protecting the interests of individuals and organizations with money. Mm. Um, And if you go back and look at a case like uh, McCutcheon uh, versus Federal Election Commission, um, Chief Justice Roberts is very, very worried about Mr. McCutcheon, this Georgia millionaire, because he won't be able to give money to as many candidates as he wants, and that's his right. He has a right to participate uh, in democracy, and and compromising that right is just a horrible thing. Uh, Flash forward, you know, to last term in the Brnovich decision, Mm -hmm. where Justice Alito is discussing the act of voting, which is literally the only sovereign act most citizens can, can engage in. And he says, well, you know, some people want to vote and some people don't. It's sort of like that big exhibit at the museum that you mean to go to, but you don't get to. Uh, or some people don't want to sleep late and don't want to. So, you know, the, the right to vote can be limited in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have this, this in the, under the cover of the idea of democracy and participation, the uh, game has been rigged very systematically in favor of uh, large uh, individuals and institutions. Um, and as Bernadette noted, against uh, labor unions. That's one of the court's longest running um, uh, obsessions, sure. going back to uh, the Lochner Court, uh, brief 
period of change under the New Deal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, labor unions better not get out of hand. We, we've got to, uh, you know, corporations have First Amendment rights, but labor unions, you know, have got to, we've got to police what they're allowed to spend. Yeah. Uh, uh, the picture is, is, is kind of distorted in that regard. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting uh, framework to, to, to kind of think of uh, juxtaposition the juxtaposition of uh, of different kinds of rulings uh, from the court. Um, let's go to Chris in Detroit. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, Chris. So one of the things I wanted to say is that we have minimum ages for uh, major roles in the United States, governor, mayor, president. Mm-hmm. We also have We also have a maximum term limit. When you look at when you look at a person that's been on the court for fifty years, thirty years, when they came in there, they had certain prejudices. We understood those prejudices for those times, but when you look at it for the next, uh, for you look at them and they stay on the, uh, the court for forty years, their, pre- their prejudice and idiocracies have not changed in that amount of time. Mm. So therefore, the the views of America have not changed either especially if you're interpreting the laws in the way they want to go. Mm. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate you uh, calling in and raising this issue. I also want to read a Twitter comment that's along the same lines before we get back to our experts. Uh, Carl on Twitter says, the lack of term limits for justices is a fundamental flaw in constitutional framework. All the controversy over Scalia's and RBG's replacements would have been avoided if there were reasonable term limits. The court has too much power to leave that up to death or retirement. Uh, this is a this is a subject that does come up uh, pretty frequently in popular discussion of the courts. The idea of uh, of how long people serve uh, and and when they decide to retire. They of course are lifetime appointees, uh, not just uh, at the um, not just at the Supreme Court level, but uh, but in other federal courts as well. Um, uh, Professor Epps, I'll start with you this time. Uh, respond to Chris and to Carl's questions about why we why we do it that way. Well, well, I think if you uh, go back to the framing, and and uh, uh, Dean Trainer is. Uh, more of an expert on the framing than I am. But if you go back to the framing, the, the vision of the court was kind of under-theorized in the sense that, you know, as, as Dean Trainer notes, nobody sat down at Philadelphia and said, now look, exactly what is this court going to do mm-hmm. and why have we got it? Um, and uh, as a result, they, they created protections for judicial independence that have had an unforeseen effect uh, as time has gone on and human lifespans have gotten longer. The ordinary term of a Supreme Court justice in the 19th century was, you know, somewhere around 10, maybe 15 years because uh, people were nominated. There wasn't this obsession with nominating young people and people didn't necessarily live as long. Mm-hmm. Now we're dealing with a situation where we have uh, octogenarians on the court uh, who stubbornly refuse to retire, even though you know, their, their performance seems to slip. Um, Justice Scalia, for example, was clearly not uh, himself in the last few terms that he served. Uh, and there's, there's no real way to address that. And given that there are only nine openings on this incredibly powerful institution, every one assumes a kind of life and death importance mm-hmm. that really isn't healthy 
Uh, it's not healthy for a, for a democratic system to be so focused, uh, you know, and your, your caller is absolutely right about this, to be so focused on the individual personalities of people who are going to make consequential decisions without any real uh, accountability mm. uh, yeah. to other players in the system or to the people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dean Trainer, um, I, I actually am somebody who... Uh, comes has at least historically come down on the opposite side of of this question, and it it really has to do with the time that I spent in Washington covering the Supreme Court, five terms uh, in the early two thousands to the to the late two thousands. Uh, I, I really came to admire uh, the independence that I think uh, owes in large part to the fact that uh, that they have lifetime appointments. Uh, I, I think there are some. Uh, some counterexamples uh, that that make it seem like less of a useful uh, feature of the of the system, but that overall it it leavens some of the influence of uh, of time and and politics, I guess, on uh, on on court interpretation. But but I wonder what you make of uh, the lifetime appointment and and whether that is something that you know, contributes to the health of the republic or maybe maybe detracts from it? Well, I think, you know, as Professor Epps said, when they when they drafted the Constitution, they, you know, they they made a conscious choice for lifetime appointment because they wanted judicial independence. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the states had judges serve for terms and they wanted to make sure that judge federal judges had the independence of lifetime appointments give. Um, but a couple of things have changed. You know, one is, you know, again, as Professor Epps said, people live longer now. Um, the other is, you know, that we're now very aware of the consequence. In some ways, it's kind of the happenstance of people's longevity. Uh, you know, if, first of all, you have a, a push to, to name young people uh, so that they'll be on the court for a long time. But just, you know, what happens is uh, because of when people die, or retire, you know, some presidents have great weight in shaping the history of the court for, for decades, and others don't. Uh, so President Nixon had four appointees to the court. Uh, Jimmy Carter had had uh, none. Uh, you know, Donald Trump in one term had three appointees. Uh, President Clinton and President Obama in two terms each had two. So kind of the happenstance of when people die, you know, and then the ability that they can be on the court for 40 or 50 years Mm -hmm. leads, first of all, presidents to pick younger people. And then happenstance shapes, you know, the the path of the court again for decades. So I think, you know, where I would draw the balance is uh, to have long term limits. Um, So 15 years or 20 years. So the Supreme Court uh, justice is not thinking about um, my next job, and I'm gonna I'm gonna come down with decisions that curry favor with whoever can help me as I look for that job. You know, so 15 or 20 years will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it will you know avoid kind of the you know the happenstance of you know um, you know Justice Stevens was a great justice. Um, actually, when he was named to the court, he just had a heart attack and, mm-hmm. and people worried uh, about whether he would have, a, you know, be able to be on the court for a long time. He was on the court for 40 years. Yes. And so, you know, the fact that he was in such good health 
really shaped jurisprudence in a way that, you know, I think we should be more kind of methodical and have term limits so we know when the turnover will be. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Dean Trainer and Professor Epps about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and the justices, the role that they play shaping our lives here in America. And we want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is always the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking as part of our WDET book club discussion about the U.S. Constitution, about the U.S. Supreme Court, the, the justices who make decisions about what the Constitution will mean for us uh, in our country, what our laws mean. Uh, we've got two great experts with us uh, to help us with the conversation. <clears throat> William Trainer is the dean of Georgetown Law and a constitutional historian. Garrett Epps is professor of law emeritus at the University of Baltimore and a constitutional uh, scholar. Uh, we also would love to hear from you about what you make of the U.S. Supreme Court and its role uh, give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Just a, a heads up for callers, we're having a little bit of problem with the phones right now, so uh, you might do better to get onto social media uh, and share your thoughts with us. That way it'll be a little easier to include you um, in the program. Um, professors, I want to start this part of the program here. Uh, I remember really clearly um, uh, when Chief Justice Roberts was uh, confirmed um, that he talked a lot about the outsized role that the court had been playing for uh, many years and that his vision of the court's uh, uh, work would would take it away from some of the glare of uh, media attention and controversy. Uh, he wanted to shrink the docket a little is what I remember um, uh, as well. If we look at now, um, you know, uh, 15 or, or, or more years later, it seems like he's been thwarted in that in that effort. And I, I really wonder what you make of that that idea uh, that he had, uh, why it didn't work, and whether it was uh, a worthy goal uh, in the first place uh, in the context of what uh, role the the founders, for instance, imagined uh, the, the court playing. Uh, Dean Trainer, I'll start with you this time. I think the one of the major reasons why he's been thwarted in that is the the you know kind of the conservative appointments to the court uh, you know have shifted the balance uh, 
uh, from what I think he originally envisioned. Um, you know, but we see, you know, what he as chief justice has tried to do uh, is, you know, consistent with what he talked about in the Senate uh, during his confirmation hearings, which is try to make the court to be like an umpire to call strikes and balls and, and nothing more. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw that in the Obamacare case, uh, you know, where he, I think, really struggled uh, to uphold the Obamacare. Uh, and he was successful uh, by a five to four vote. And, you know, that reflected, I think, his decision that it would be bad for the court's political standing, you mm-hmm. know, if it was seen as striking down kind of the great uh, landmark achievement of President Obama. Um, I think, you know, we've seen it most recently in the, uh, the Texas abortion case, um, you know, which came to the court in a preliminary context. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the chief justice voted with the liberals, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, enjoin the operation of the statute. But that was that was five to four. Uh, and he was on the losing side there. You know, at the same time, I think, you know, there are certain things that, uh, you know, I think he believes in deeply uh, and where he's he's committed to, you know, overturning precedent. I think abortion is one area. Um, I think, you know, we also see that uh, in affirmative action. But his jurisprudence is much more to kind of move incrementally rather than to have one big decision that overturns the precedent. So, you know, I think that's his, you know, so again, his vision is of a limited uh, role of the courts. I think with the exception probably of affirmative action and abortion, it has really guided him. But again, I think in those areas, you know, he's much more in favor of kind of incremental change, which ultimately will lead to a a shift in precedent, but not all at once. Mm -hmm. And again, but that's increasingly not, where the court is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Epps, uh, some people uh, cynically said at the time that uh, what the chief justice was really advocating for uh, was a more conservative approach by the court and that conservative causes would benefit from uh, that approach. I wonder what you make of what he said and uh, what's happened in the year since. Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, you the the he you know Dean Trainer is right in the sense that the Chief Justice's approach toward moving the court to the right and there's no question in my mind that that was uh, his desire when he took the bench uh, is kind of limited by uh, this incremental sense this sense of what the the country will will bear uh, and also you know a real genuine concern about the court's traditional institutional role. And I think the thing we have to talk about as we look at the kind of struggle that the Chief Justice is having right now um, is that we talk about the Supreme Court as if it were, you know, an institution that is continuous going back to when uh, the justices met at Stella's Tavern Taproom in order to uh, uh, announce uh, Marbury versus Madison. And it's not. And in fact, the Supreme Court that we have today in 2021 is a radically different institution than it was in February 2016 when Justice Scalia died. It has been taken over, and this is, you know, this is explicit. This wasn't even hidden. It has been taken over by one of the two political parties for partisan ends. Uh, it has been made a key part of the electoral uh, process, and the rules have been changed repeatedly. 
there are two appointments to this court that I regard as entirely illegitimate. Mm. Uh, and, and that is Neil Gorsuch, uh, who was appointed because the Senate Majority Leader said the Senate would not play, play its role uh, in advising consent because he disapproved of the current president. Uh, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who uh, was jammed onto the court in an act of absolutely brutal hypocrisy by this same person who said that presidents should, nominees should not be confirmed during an election year, and she was confirmed eight days before an election mm-hmm. that the Republican president lost by seven million votes. This institution today, we don't know what it's going to be like. I'm not going to sit here and tell you the court's going to do X, Y, and Z, because uh, I don't think they know. But I think their sense of the institution is is changed, if not permanently, then let's just say for the mid to long term, the court is not what it was and how it's going to use its authority and conserve its authority are questions that concern us all. Mm, yeah. Uh, let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, uh, are you there? Are the phones working okay for yes. you here? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I've had yeah. a lot of silence, but that's fine. <laughs> go okay, ahead. So I see we're short on time. So, um, you know, I've lived most of my life kind of mundanely in the middle, but you can't be mundane in the middle anymore because everything's so extreme. And one of the questions that keeps coming up, and I'd be interested in the reflection on the Supreme Court. Are we a democracy over a republic, or are we a republic over a democracy? Hmm. Which which is, and then because it seems like uh, uh, if the three branches of government were in proper tension, the systems would be protected and the individuals would be protected. Hmm. Uh, great question, Dennis, and I, I'm going to apologize up front because we only got about a minute left, so I'm not sure you're going to get quite the answer that uh, that you should to that. But uh, Dean Trainer, I'll leave it to you to give us a very brief answer to Dennis's question. Right. I mean, I think the core role of the court should be to make democracy work. Um, That's why the voting rights cases are important. That's why Citizens United was a terrible decision. And that's why a case like Baker versus Carr, which was about one person, one vote, Mm -hmm. is really the Supreme Court at its best. So, you know, the court should be, the court is not a democratic institution but it should be supporting democratic institutions and it should be supporting the right to a vote. Yeah. Okay. Uh, William Trainer, Dean of Georgetown Law. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. This yeah. was really, it was great to be part of this conversation. Yeah. And uh, Garrett Epps, professor of law emeritus at the University of Baltimore. It was really wonderful to have you here as well. Thank you as well. Uh, it was fun. Worth getting up for. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how utilities and regulators are reacting to the catastrophic weather events this summer and how they're preparing and maybe not preparing for climate change. Really important conversation given the rough time we have had with terrible storms here in southeast Michigan uh, this summer. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>